In Judges chapter 3, we will see the downward spiral played out in the life of Israel. We will see that played out over and over, repeating the same failure, same mistake, same turning away from God and going to the world. And it's so true for the spiritual life as well. A spiritual collapse in the life of a believer is rarely the result of just, I just, it just, just happened. It only just happened. No, no. It's never just happened. It's just not a, just a sudden blowout. It is something that is a slow, a result of a slow leak that resulted in you falling to a point where you're walking and not keeping your eyes on God. So we see the same thing here with Israel. It's a slow leak. It's a slow heart is changing and moving away. And it's a downward spiral that we've talked about in the first two chapters of Judges. Because compromises are made. Slow little compromises are constantly being made. And with those compromises, they end up adding up and you don't even know you're spiraling out. And, or drifting away, as, as many would say. It's a devotional life that started to, ah, ignoring that devotional life. It's no big deal if I missed reading my word today. It's no big deal I've not been talking about the things. that. No big deal I went didn't go to church and get around God's people or been taught the word of God. All these things that used to strengthen you, to encourage you and keep you walking with God. All of a sudden, the things of this world or the flesh, and it just, it just slowly leaks out. It's like, oh, you know, you're you're not going to do that anymore. Nah, I got other things that can really, you know how important it is. God has called me to go do these other things, you know. Oh, really? Okay. So how profitable is that? How good is that for you? No, it's slow leakage. You just justify why you don't want anything to draw close to God and continue to walk with God. But that's that, that ignoring that starts ignoring that, that life of devotion to him. A slow but sure spiral the spiritual strength we once enjoyed is just starts dissipated until finally we find ourselves unable to go on. We find ourselves completely depleted, not wanting to go on walking with the Lord. And as we continue in the book of Judges, we will see the spiritual collapse of the people of God. And the reason is not because they were just blown out by their enemies. The enemy overtook them. It was just a sudden attack and it just overcame me. No, but it'll be rather the fact that they were compromising with the enemy. They were compromising and that's what was, it caused them to end up uh, falling. And that is why as a Christian, you and I, we must not lose our focus on God because if we start getting a little fuzzy and start getting distracted you will not be you'll be so vulnerable to not a big attack from the enemy because that's usually that's when you get attacked you're like oh then you got your shield up you got your sword going and you 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 know it's an attack but it's the subtleness, it's the little here, little there, that all of a sudden becomes where it makes you very vulnerable because it's a slow, subtle attacks that are you compromise and you allow in your life. So tonight we'll see the three, uh, first three judges of the 13 judges. Remember, 13 judges, 12 men, one woman. And here tonight we'll see in Judges 3, 1 through 2, verses 1 and 2 here first, we're talking about the, where the Israelites are right now. They're in the territory, the territory of Israel, God's promised land. And, but they've allowed the pagan, uh, non-believing, non-Jewish people to dwell in there. And they're just compromising, allowing them to stay in there. But look what's interesting in these verses here, in the first part of chapter 3. Now these are the nations with the, which the Lord left. Notice that. Which the Lord left. Why did he leave the enemy in the promised land? That he might test Israel by them. That is, all who had not known any of the wars of Canaan, this was only so that the generations of the children of Israel might be taught to know war, at least those who had not formally known it. So we see right up front, God is the one that allowed those enemies, even though it's, it's a balance here. God said to get them, get them all out. 
The people compromised and said, no, 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 it's fine. Some of them can stay here. Why? Because we're benefiting financially to allow that, 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 those groups of people to stay with us. You know, we've got some other benefits we can get from this. You know, we, we don't want to go and continue to do the war. Whatever it was, but God in itself allowed them to continue to co compromise. And he said, okay, you, you, you want to do that? Okay, I, I'm not going to force you to do this. So why? Because God said, I'm going to test you. Are you really going to follow me or are you going to succumb to the things, you know, these enemies that you've allowed to stay in your, in your neighborhood here? But so God left these Canaanite nations behind because Israel was not faithful in driving them out. God could have taken them out. He could have wiped them out for his people. But no, they were responsible to get the, the rest of them out and to secure the land. And one might, one might think, you know, rightly say that it was a combination of both their choice and God's allowance or God's will. Because he's going to use it to test his people. So two reasons why the Lord allowed them to remain in the land. To test and to teach. Lord, why do you, these things stay? Why is this still happening? Why are the enemies coming after me? Why is this still happening in my life? Why I don't want it, but I've, I've, I've allowed it and I, I've compromised and stuff. He says, ah, I come to realize. Sometimes God says, you don't want to be in a full compliance, a full obedience to my will? Fine, I'll let you have your will. I'll let, you, I'll let it stay right there. Why? Because I'm going to test you and to teach you. Do you really love me? Do you really want to follow me? Do you want to trust me? And it was within the power of God to eliminate these pagan nations without the Israelites' help. But God allowed the troublesome peoples to remain for a reason. And the reason is very clear here. The word test here is used in the sense of proving, to prove. To, to, to allow it to rise up, to, to, to gain, right? To prove these nations would remain because God wanted to prove the faithfulness of Israel to himself. To improve their reliance on him. Why does God test us? To teach us? To prove that our faithfulness, to, prove, to build our faithfulness up for him but also to improve their reliance upon him. Because if, if you had all the money and all the security and health and everything else, how faithful would you be to worship God? How faithful would you to be completely reliant upon him when your accounts are so just overabundance and you had everything you needed? People say, oh, I would worship God. <laughs> Watch out. More likely you will not because you will rely upon your own resources and not continue to rely upon God's provision for daily life. And that's where we need to stay, regardless of if an empty account or a full account, if you're a completely healthier or falling apart. When you have no testing, no enemies coming against you, or you have enemies are surrounding you every single day looking to take your head off. We're supposed to be consistent in just relying upon God for daily life. It's a daily walk. God doesn't just instantly change every area of our lives. Did you realize when you came to Christ, now everything disappeared, all the, uh, the junk, all the negative, all everything, it just went away, it just vanished, and everything was beautiful and right and good? No, no, no. He doesn't take it all away at every, because you and I couldn't handle that. If he had a clean house completely, you couldn't handle him completely cleaning the house. He just said, let me in the house and I'm going to give you a promise. I'm going to clean and completely revamp your entire life. But he doesn't say how quickly he's going to do that because we couldn't handle that. So God doesn't instantly change every area of our lives so that our relationship with him can be proved and improved so that we will live a life of true partnership, of true fellowship, a true a, a, a servant of God. And you notice here at the very uh, at the end here, as he talks about, there is this next generation of children of Israel that are coming up that have never knew war. They didn't know how to fight. They were just living in peace. 
And this was another reason why God is allowing the Canaanites to remain there where Israel did not drive them out because God wanted to even use his people to be warriors. And the presence of these dangerous neighbors would make it necessary for future generations to know war, to know what it means to protect and to push back the enemy that are going to come against his people. No one likes struggles in life. No one likes to struggle. I don't know about you. I don't like to struggle. Who likes to struggle against sin in your life? Who wants to struggle and buy heads with people around you who don't like you because you're of your faith? No one likes that. But the battle is good for us. The symbol of Christianity is what? An umbrella? <laughs> and your little lounger on the beach? And sitting there having a, just a wonderful time and relaxing? No, it's a cross. The symbol for our Christianity is a cross. Pick up your cross and follow me. It doesn't say pick up your umbrella and have a nice, easy life. I mean, we forget these things. As much as we don't want to struggle, we want an easy life. The disciples didn't have an easy life. God's people has never had an easy life. Oh, but how great our life will be here in eternity. This is temporary light affliction <laughs> compared to what we have in store for us. Verse 3, namely the five lords of the Philistines. Who are these enemies he's allowed to stay there? The five lords of the Philistines. All the Canaanites, the, the Sidonians, the Hebites, uh, who dwelt in Mount uh, uh, Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon to the entrance of Hamath and there and they were left that he capital H he might test Israel by them to know whether they would obey the commandments of the Lord which he had commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses so God named the the pagan people that were stubbornly, literally entrenched into the, into the land and they couldn't get them out because they didn't, didn't get them out. They just were so strong, they, weren't willing, they were willing to compromise and let them stay because it was too much of a struggle to get it out of their lives. And so after this same pattern, some could today make a very specific list of pagan territory in the life of a believer. I, Lord, I'm glad you got some of those things out of my life, but there's some things in my life territory that I'm okay if it stays in my life because it's just not worth the effort. I'm tired. But he has to understand. If you have this list of things in your, your life that you're willing to allow and it's just, just to stay there and, and, and just allow the identified enemy to just stay in your life, then you're compromising to what God wants to do. And he's going to use that in your life to then prove you and improve you, to test you and to teach you, to train you, to, to change, to, to trust and faithful, uh, faithfully tr uh, trust him in your life. And that's why he says right there, he might test Israel by them. To what? Will you obey or not? Why do I allow these things to come, in back, come touch your life? Because let's see if you are going to obey me or not. That's the reason. The reason that God didn't just eliminate these nations is, is very clearly stated right here. To prove Israel's commitment to God and his word. To reveal in the people's heart what, what they, who they truly were wanting to follow. Of course I'm following God. Let's just, let's, just, let's just prove that. Let's just test it. Let's see if you really are going to follow God. If they're really going to be obedient to the word of God. They're really going to do what God's word said and what he told through Moses all the way down through to Josh. All, all of them told them what to do. Will they going to comply in obedience to them as a nation? Because God said to be obedient to the word. Because the other nations, these, 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 these Philistines and these Canaanites, they're not going to hinder and listen to the word of God. 
Are you going to be strong enough and obedient to God so that you'll be strong enough to actually drive these people out completely? No, they did not. God tested that and it's proven. In verse 5, thus the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites. The word dwelt is very important there. It means allowance. It means it's fine. It could actually take root and dwell. It could just stay there. It wasn't any trying to push them out. They allowed them to be right there and to be part of them. And they dwelt among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Parasites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And they took their daughters to be their wives and gave their daughters to their sons. And they served their gods. So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot that the Lord, they forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. Well, things got worse here. But we see the very first judge. The first judge that God is going to raise up to rescue Israel because of the apostasy of Israel. One of the reasons why they let the Canaanites and all these, the Palestinians, the, Pal- the, the, um, the Philistines and all of them, the Canaanites, the, Sidon- uh, the Sidonians and all the Hittites and all them to dwell is because they were looking to have intermarriage with them. Their flesh drove them to allow the enemy to stay there because they want to fulfill their lust by intermarriage. It just proved where their heart was. God said you can't do that. They did it. You're going to follow me and be obedient? Yes. And, but they turn around and enter marriage with non-believers. You can say you love God all you want, but you're not being obedient to God. So part of the accommodation of Israel is to those pagan, pagan people surrounding them was their sin of intermarriage with the pagan nations. And that was a, a perfect picture of revealing that they forgot the Lord their God. Did they really forget? No, they stopped thinking about God. Because if they, did, they thought about God, they knew they should be obedient. But if you stop thinking about God and you don't get around and don't, don't read the Bible, <laughs> don't get around God people, God's people who actually talk about the Bible, let's just get around people who are Christian for social only. But they don't talk about God. They don't bring their Bibles. They don't open it up. They don't. No, no, let's, let's get around them because then it doesn't remind me that I want to live by my flesh and be disobedient to the word of God. And you can find that flavor. Some church somewhere will accommodate your social needs, but, but it, it'll be a little safer maybe than the bars. Because you know the bars are not going to be good for you. The clubs are not going to be good for you. So you got out of that part, but you've compromised and say, okay, now let me just go find some social club and we'll call it a church and, and it's safe enough. But as long as they don't talk about God and open the Bible and they ask me to, no, no, that, you know, that's too much. That's what they did. They forgot the Lord. They didn't want, they want him out of their minds and they wanted to serve and follow what their flesh had. And that's what Baals and the Ashtaroths offered them. Ungodly romances led them to worship these pagan deities. And Jesus warned us in the scriptures. In Mark 10, verses 29 and 30, Jesus told us that following him would require that we give up the things we love most. Of the flesh, you're going to have to give them up. And one of those is ungodly romances that falls in that exact character category. You're dating some non-believer and you call yourself a Christian. you got to cut that off. The Israelites spiraling down. They see the three steps. They lived among the Canaanites. They started then intermarrying, intertwining, and, and mingling their lives together. And what ends up happening? They didn't, didn't serve their God. No, no, they went and served the non-believing gods, the, 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 the pagan gods. And each one of them was very natural. It was natural for them just to 
Get around non-believers. Oh, yo, I don't have a problem, Pastor. It's okay. I'm just hanging around because I really want to. They've invited me to go out on Friday nights because they, I, I can go out there and witness to them. These are my, my buddies. These are my coworkers. I'll get to witness to them and I will share God. Really? Okay. Let's, let's see how that goes. And it's Friday after Friday, then the Saturdays, and there are other things. And now they're doing things on Sundays. And, oh, yeah, they've invited me. It's a Sunday. It's no big deal. It's, I, I, I went to church once in the last you know, couple months. But they want me to go again, and they, I'm trying to witness to them. Are you? Really? Then what will happen is then all of a sudden now you're, you're having relationships in some form or fashion. And ultimately, you're, you're, you're just living in the world Doing and serving and doing what they do. They all have effect on you, you not having effect on them. We too can repeat this pattern in our lives if we're not careful. We dwell with the world. We start relating to the world. We end up worshiping the world. It is a very natural process for us to do if we're not careful. Let me remind you once again that none of us falls into sin. It doesn't just happen. We fall into sin because it's a slow one step at a time. And it starts with a mindset. It starts with a thought. And that thought will line up with opportunity because I guarantee the enemy will allow you to have that opportunity. And it's all of a sudden you find yourself, even though the Lord is saying, wait, stop no touchy, and you're ignoring because you're so focused on wanting to be like the world and what the world has to offer. And you wonder, it just happened, Patrick. No, it doesn't just happen. It started in your mind long time ago. You're just opportunity now hit. That's why we see in Romans 13, 14, that is why we put on the Lord Jesus Christ and we are not to make provisions for the flesh. Romans 13, 14, make sure you memorize that. You put on the Lord Jesus Christ so that you will not make any provisions for the flesh. No provision. What happened? Verse 8. Therefore, an, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Cushan Rish, Rishathanim, the king of Mesopotamia, and the children of Israel served Cushan Rishathamim eight years. He let him go into bondage, into captivity for eight years because they turned their back on God. They did evil in the sight of God. So God gave Israel just exactly what they wanted. Is that what you want? I'll give it to you. They didn't want to serve God, so he allowed them to be in the bondage to this pagan king, this king of Mesopotamia, and said, Israel, repeat, you reap what you sow. It's a law you're not going to get around. Like the law of gravity, you can fight it all you want, but eventually you're coming down. What you reap, you sow. And that's what he says, okay, this is what you want, this is what you can have. And so in those ancient times, this, the word Mesopotamia describes a fertile, well-watered area that would be today the eastern sea, um, uh, Syria and northern Iraq area. That's where they were taken up to. Eight years. Eight years of bondage before finally Israel cries out unto the Lord and says, God help me. I've been in bondage for eight years. Help me. What happens? He raises up the first judge. We see he raises up Othanel. And we see in verse 9, when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the children of Israel who delivered them. Othanel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord, here comes God, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him and he judged Israel. He, he was the hero. He was coming as a deliverer. He went out to war and the Lord delivered Kushan Rishathanim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand and his hand prevailed over 
Kushan Rishathaim, Rishathaim. So the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othanel, the son of Kenaz, died. So he rescued them, brought them back, and they had rest with God in the land for 40 years. Eight years of bondage of Israel, finally crying out. And how true it is, sometimes it often takes many years of bondage and calamity before man will actually look away from self and look to God for help. How many years have some people been in bondage of sin, disobedience? I highly recommend if you're in that position tonight and the Lord's speaking to you that you cry out to the Lord. He sent Jesus your deliverer. Trust him to free you. The Lord raised up a deliverer here, a judge we see often now. Often now. Othaniel was the son-in-law of the great hero Caleb that we saw there in the beginning of Judges chapter 1. And he even married a woman of faith in, in the first part of Judges chapter 1 as well, verses 13 through 15. But the Spirit of the Lord is what happened. The Spirit of the Lord came upon this judge and empowered him to do the work that he wanted him to do to rescue his people, to bring him out of bondage. And we don't know very much about this man, Othanel, but this was enough to know. All we needed to know is that this man was used by God, empowered by God to do the will of God, and that's all that matters. Any other description of what he looked like doesn't matter. Where he came from doesn't matter. We know where he came from because we see the lineage there. But that's not what, where the power came from. It's not because of a, a, some lineage of a great father or grandfather or great grandfather. No, no. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him. The Holy Spirit empowered him for the job that God, God called him to do. Othanel lived the principle of Zechariah 4.6. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Oh, isn't that, does not, not, not want to ring in your own ears, in your own heart, that we would be like this man that is empowered by the spirit of the Lord and we can help to reach the loss of this community? As a believer... Since Pentecost, we see in Acts 2, a more general and permanent empowerment of the Holy Spirit has been given to us as a privilege for every disciple to be empowered to go do that work. What an amazing responsibility and, and, and blessing to be able to be empowered by the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. To live a life that is obedient to in the will of God and to go out and help people to know the good news. Now we see the second judge, Ehud. We see in verses 12 through 14 that in the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. What? They just got delivered. What do you mean? It's been 40 years. What, did they, what happened after 40 years? We just see that the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they, did, they had done evil in the sight of the Lord again. Then he gathered to himself the people of Ammon and Amalek and went and defeated Israel and took possession of the city of Palms, Jericho. So the children of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, 18 years. Now instead of eight years of bondage, they're now in 18 years of bondage again. Another generation. It's been 40 years. After God had delivered them from the work out of by Othanel, that judge, Israel eventually drifted away from the dependence and the obedience toward God again. That's what happens. 
when you just find yourself just less dependent upon God, less obedient to God, less trusting in God, just trusting what the world, living by sight, not by, by, by faith. Again, just another drifting off again. And the last victory, the last coming out and being, being brought out and victory and brought out did not automatically last forever. They had to continue to live for God. Once you get saved, you don't, that's not the end of it. You live by faith every day. We have to maintain that. Not our salvation, we're saved, but we must work out our, our salvation, the Bible says. We must do what God calls us to do because he's proving us, he's testing us, he's allowing us to grow and to learn and teach with our eyes so focused on the fact that he's coming back for us soon. To be about the Father's business. But the children here, they again went back into the evil in the sight of the Lord and he turned them over this time now to the king of Moab, Eglon. Israel's sin brought them back into bondage. They suffered eight years under bondage on one. Now we're finding they're going to be at that stubborn rebelliousness is going to bring 18 stubborn years of bondage before the Lord again until they finally cry out. Before, it took them only eight years to cry out to the Lord. This time, it took them 18 years to cry out to the Lord. Even worse. It always gets worse when you go back to the old life. It's a lot harder to surrender and humble yourself and come back to the Lord and to, 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 to die of self. It gets harder, more difficult. Sin always brings bondage. Deceptively, it comes. It just, it just kind of works its way back. How did I get back here? How did I do this again? Why didn't I learn from the past? Why didn't I learn from others? This generation is raising up. Why did they learn from their others and not to do what they did 40 years prior to that? Why did they learn from them? It's like a fish on a, going for a hook. The, the fish looks at it. It doesn't think about the consequences. It doesn't think about the bondage that that thing, that this shiny little object that's floating in front of them with the little kind of food there. Oh, that looks really good. They never think about the consequence. You never think about the bondage, what that hook is going to do. It's going to hook you and you're going to go into bondage again. No touchy. Don't touch it. Get away, swim away from it. But that's how Satan snares us. By just putting out the bait. A very attractive bait. But there's always a hidden hook behind it. <laughs> Run. Run. Verse 15. But when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them. Ehud, the son of Girah, the Benjamite, the left-handed man. By him the children of Israel sent the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Stop right here. Interesting. This really does show the mercy of God, right? He's giving them a second chance. And Israel just obviously repeatedly drifting from God and went back into bondage again because they just wanted the things of this world. He had every right to cast them off completely. But God gave him a second chance. He still responded to their cries. When they finally called out on him, to him for deliverance. Oh God, come deliver us. Deliver me from this wickedness. And he raised up another judge. Ehud, a left-handed man. That's very rare because in the ancient times, ancient world, a left-handed people were often forced to become right-handed. That it wasn't right to be left-handed. And he stands as a left-handed man was very unusual and very distractive. Like, wow, you're a left-handed man. That, that's not very unreal. And it's interesting because God used that uniqueness for a very interesting moment here. 
He raises this judge up, and we're going to see something very unique. It tests many people when they read this. But Ehud actually assassinates the king, Eglon. Look at this. Now Ehud made himself a dagger. It was double-edged and a cubit in length. And it fastened it under his clothes on his right thigh. So he brought the tribute. Remember, they had a tribute, and that's what they were to do back in those days because they were in bondage to him. They had to bring something. We'll talk about that a little bit. But so he brought the tribute to Eglon, the king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. In the Greek, is very, like, extremely obese. Not just a little bit over on the scale. Massive man. And when he had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who had carried the tribute. So the judge, Ehud, said to his guys who brought it all in, more than likely it was food. (laughs) He was a fat man. It was food. So he had all kinds of foods and stuff that they could offer and bring it to him. He says to his guys who brought it all in, you got to get out of here. You're done. Thank you for bringing it here. We got the tribute. I'll stay here. You go. But he himself turned back from the stones images that were in Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. Can you see that? Here we go. Get out of here. Go, 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 go. And let's focus on you. Get get out from this area. Let's, you know, see those stone images. Disappear from those, man. Go, go. He turns around and he says, and comes back and says to the king, I have a secret message for you, king. He said, he, don't miss this. He, who's he? The king. Responds, says, said, keep silent. You who don't say a thing, keep silent. And all who attended him, all of his servants, the king's servants, he who attended him went out from him, and Ehud came to him. Now he was sitting upstairs in his cool private chamber. Then Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. So he arose from his seat. Then Ehud reached with his left hand, took the dagger from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. That was a complete surprise because no one expects a man to grab a weapon with his what? Left hand would always be the right. So he got underneath that little skirt of his and pulled that thing right out there and shocked this, this obese king and thrust it into his belly, even the hilt, the handle of this thing, of the dagger, went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not draw the dagger out of his belly, and his entrails came out. Then Ehud went out through the porch and shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them, and when he had gone out... Eglon's servants came to look, and to their surprise, the doors of the upper room were locked. So they said, he is probably attending to his needs in the cool chamber. So they waited till they were, they were embarrassed, and still he had not opened the doors of the upper room. You can hear the conversation. What's, what's the boss doing? He's probably on the throne. You know how long that takes him. He's a big boy. He, he, you know, he's, he, he, let's just wait. And then there's a, this is really embarrassing. What's going on with this man in there, right? He, they're getting embarrassed because it's taking so long. Finally, they say, what? They better, we better go open the door. They're embarrassed. We have to go open the door to make sure he's okay. So still, he had not opened the doors in the doors of the upper room. Therefore, they took the key and opened them. And there was their master fallen dead on the floor. But Ehud had escaped while they delayed and passed beyond the stone images and escaped to Seirah. So here, Israel had to pay the tribute money. 
They come in here, it's all planned out, Ehud, the judge here had it all planned out. They brought the things, uh, they're, they're going to be a messenger or a courier to Eglon, that here they are, they're paying their, their, their share, they're showing their, 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 uh, their, to their master the, the food, the, the wool, the, everything they had to offer to them. And it's true, he didn't lie, Ehud didn't, didn't lie, he says, I have a message from God for you. He didn't lie. It's just not a good message. It was not only in words, but it was an action here. So he says, I have, a, I, have a, I have a message from God. He told the truth. The message was, those who oppose the people of God touch the apple of his eye and will be judged for it. That's the message. You mess with God's people, you're messing with God. It's interesting. I have a message from God for you. And we see that that message is God's messages are sharp as a two-edged sword and can cause death. God's word pierces as two-edged sword to the dividing of the soul and the spirit into the recesses of the being. To a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. God's word is sharp. And sometimes it hurts when the message of God is very sharp to you and I as we study the word. He's sharp because he's getting right to the heart of the issue that you're not willing to be honest about. And you need to hear it. And as a preacher, as a teacher, as a pastor, I should also present the word of God with a sense that he has a message from God to you. These are not just, these are just not something we do because it's a religious thing to do. I know this is God's word and I know God has a message for you and I every time I preach it. He preaches to me and teaches me and has a message to me all week long while I'm studying it. I get to just share with you what the Spirit of God is showing me to show you. And so we see this man gets a belly full, the blade, the handle, so, so much belly there that you, it got lost inside there. Cut it open, went right inside. Right into the abdomen. Can't even see it. And he is probably attending to his needs, they thought, in that cool chamber because we see that uh, without being, obviously being too coarse, too, too, too rude here. It's true to life, right? A man had his basic needs that need to be met. Attending to his needs, it literally means in the, in the language here, covering his feet or having to have a bathroom break in, in a polite terms to eliminate. We see that same word used in 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 3. But his... Ehud's people got out of there. He got out of there. And we see that they went past the stone images, which is mentioned back, uh, mentioned here a couple of times, but also it, it probably is, comes from Joshua chapter 4, verses 19 through 24, the actual stones that were set up by Joshua to commemorate the miraculous crossing of the Jordan. They were well-known landmarks. Get to the other side of those. You need to get free. So what happens next? Ehud obviously now leads Israelites into battle against the Moabs here. We see it, and it happened when he arrived that he blew the trumpet in the mountains of Ephraim. And the children of Israel went down with him from the mountains, and he led them. Then he said to them, Follow me, for the Lord has delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him, seized the fords of the Jordan leading to Moab, and did not allow anyone to cross over. And at the time they killed about 10,000 men of Moab, all stout men of valor, not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rested for how long? Ah, 80 years. Ah, now instead of 40 years, now it's 80 years of rest here. Now it's interesting, as we think this through a little bit, um, God says oh, to this judge, to Ehud, 
you're going to lead. You're going to have the, the you're going to be as strong and encouraged because I'm going to empower you. I'm going to do this work in and through you. Um, you can't do it on your own apart from me. You're going to need me here to make this happen. And it was essential. It is essential. It's always essential. It's still essential today that God uses brave, faithful men to rally around him just like he needed them. He blew the trumpet. The people, faithful people came. The, the brave people came. The men to surround you, to go into, even though he was leading, God was with them. They still work together. It's the same thing with God lifts up leaders in the church today, but they can't do the work by themselves. The whole body needs to, to work together in unity. Those who are brave and faithful men and women who are willing to work together to do God's work. It's never just the one person, never just a leader, not just them. No, we must rally together to do the hard work, to especially to push back the spiritual enemy that comes against us. But he says to the people, follow me. He who said to the Israelites to follow him because he was their leader because God appointed leader. This wasn't a co uh, Israel congregation kind of decision here. God raised up a leader to say, this is what God's called us to do. And they saw and said, yes, we will follow you because God is calling you to be the leaders. And we're going to go and follow you and we're going to war to push back the enemy because we trust God. But it also teaches as a leader in the church. And he is a leader. The question is, as a leader, can't expect his followers to follow him and go anywhere if he is not willing to go and do the same thing. Where a leader is not willing to go and has not gone before, the people will not be able to follow him. But he who... God said, no, we're, this is what we're going to do. He just took out the king. <laughs> He's got to have a good reputation there. But he who's cunning and courage coupled with Israel's faithful following of a, as a leader brought Israel's longest period of freedom of 80 years under. 80 years of the 400 years of time that we're talking about in Judges. Just a snippet of that time of the 400-year period. But Ehud was a dramatic example of how in the Lord one man can make a difference to change everything for a people. And how God will call others to work with that one man. Now we see here in the verse here in Judges 3, the first part here, of the verse 31 here, we see the third judge, Shamgar, it says, after him was Shamgar, the son of Anhath. And then, so it's interesting, I'll stop right there for a minute, because Shamgar is one of six individuals that we will be studying that we refer to as the uh, minor judges. And it's because, because there's not much written about the judges. And he's one of the first ones is of, of the six that are just, but it doesn't mean his work was less of value. It's just not much there. It's more of a minor glimpse of, of this judge that God raised up of Shamgar. And so this, yet this work that they did for God is just as important in their day as anyone else's work. And what did he do? We see here at the end of the verse 31, who killed 600 men in the, of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also delivered Israel. So he was also used by God to deliver his people. After the 80 years, they went back into bondage. It doesn't give us a lot of details of bondage. Maybe he was just used to kill and to get rid of some men who were bringing them back in to keep them. But we see that he killed these Philistine uh, men. And Shamgar was a, a, obviously a great accomplishment if you could take out 600 uh, men like that. But it's, it's just this one verse. It's possible. I mean, he's Shamgar would be 
was not much known, but the fact that if you know what an ox goat is, right? It's, it's this long pole, eight feet long, about six inches around at one end, and, and one was more like a pointy so you can poke the ox to get it to going, and the other one was like a chisel so you can chisel away dirt and mud and get them off the, the things to keep plowing. That's what they use to, to, as a tool. But God used that tool in this man's hand and empowered him to take out 600 men with this post. That's amazing. Eight feet long is not easy to handle. <laughs> Six inches around at one end, at the big end. But he used it to deliver God's people from these people who appear to be coming against God's people. He rescued the people. Now it's interesting, I ponder on that and I was like, okay, who else had something in their hands that God automatically just used for his purpose to protect? Shamgar just had this huge post he's using to plow and do the things he needed to do to poke the ox to keep them going and clean off the, 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 the tools to be able to, to go through and, and, and plow. He used what was in his hand to take out 600 people of the, of the enemy. What does that sound like? Doesn't it sound like Moses and his shepherd's staff? How about David and the shepherd's sling? What tool does God give you for your normal day-to-day work that he will use to be able to do God's work? To simply accomplish great things for God. And so many times we'll say, I don't have anything. This is what I do for a living. I, 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 don't, I, I can only do this. I can only do this. But God can do this. Little fish and little bit of bread. He can feed thousands. What is it that God has given you to use in your daily life that God can use to do great things for his people? Let God raise you up for a moment like this. Father, we thank you for your word. As we continue to study, Lord, and looking at these men you raised up to, again, by grace and mercy, <laughs> you've given them three tries here. You they, Go against you, you come and rescue when they cry out. You go back and do it again and again, a third judge to rescue and bring them back out. Lord, as we will continue in the book of Judges, we will see this, this pattern play over and over and over of your people. May, Lord, may that not be us. May we learn not to go back, not to walk away from you, not to do the things of evil things in your sight. Lord, let us be living obedient and just faithful. Uh, servants of yours, just living for you day by day, worshiping you, and, and allowing you to just use the things that are normal things of life and our work, our homes, things, tools in our hands that would be of great value to serve your people, to rescue your people, to bring people to you. Use this, Lord, in a mighty way. Equip us to do this good work. In Jesus' name, amen.